Welcome to Story Kernels, the podcast that takes the kernel of a story idea, tosses it in the warming ocean, and waits for the mermaids to arrive, and then probably creepily open their maws at us like koi fish outside of a Japanese restaurant. I'm KL. And I'm Allie Martin. And we're here to talk about writing ideas and turning an idea into a story. Hey, Allie, what's been inspiring you lately? Recently, I have been reading... All the Marvels by Douglas Wolk. Uh, this is a nonfiction book that is kind of a guide to Marvel from someone who read all 27,000 plus Marvel superhero comics and survived the experience. Like, okay, listen, <laughs> where do you find the time for this? I. <laughs> I presume that he did some of this in advance, just naturally. I think he said it took him about five years to get through it. And it had started with his son asking like, hey, you know, can we read all of them starting from the beginning? And he was sort of like, well, I don't see why not. <laughs> and um, his son, of course, got bored. I don't blame him. The Silver Age is a thing. And so they skipped ahead. But he was like, this is sort of an interesting thing. What would happen? Like, what does the story look like if you actually know everything that happens? How do the pieces then all fit together? And um, that is exactly the kind of thing that I would do. Uh, I'm not going to, but I understand where he's coming from. <laughs> it's a good thing he's done it for you. Also, like, yeah. All I'm thinking right now is how every time I I'm like I'm gonna read the whole Bible and then I get to Exodus and get bored like ten pages in, so I feel like the Silver Age must be Exodus basically. Like yes, <laughs> everyone begats everyone else. <laughs> Actually, I think it probably is like Exodus. You know, there's a lot of uh, declaiming from above mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and. And things that you can't really explain happening, like that's probably yeah, not too, not too far off. But the book itself is not like a rehash of of literally everything. It's sort of um, he calls it a tour uh, through the major and minor corners of the universe. And one of the things that I thought was interesting, so it's it's there's a chapter like on the Fantastic Four and on Spider-Man and on the X-Men. So it gets a bird's eye view of some of these major cornerstones of the Marvel Universe and kind of like what it looks like. And one of the things that he does that I think is really interesting is he peeks into some of the recurring themes that happen um, and some of the motives that are at the core of all of these uh, specific stories. So like, for example, in X-Men, uh, he was saying that a lot of the stories seem to come back to recursions or inversions of two specific stories, uh, Days of Future Past, which is a apocalyptic future that could come to pass. And so there's a lot of X-Men stories that deal with apocalypse, apocalyptic futures that could come to pass if XYZ happens, or, oh, no, that event could be leading us to that future. So, you know, that one comes up all the time. And the other one is the Dark Phoenix saga, which, if you know me at all, know I hold that near and dear to my heart. So 
I was like, if you're going to come back to something a million times, that seems fine. Uh, <laughs> but I thought it was interesting to kind of like be able to drill down and be like, these are the two stories that are so important to X-Men specifically. Uh, but he does that for several of the other uh, series as well, or at least boils down to like what the main uh, threads are. So that, from like a Marvel fan perspective, I thought it was really interesting to study and learn. But from a writing standpoint... Like it got me thinking about interconnected stories and how world building connects, overlaps, and then influences. So, uh, you know, I'm not writing a whole Marvel universe independently or with co authors. Uh, but even if I was, you know, having a singular creator affects that world building differently. But the ways in which Marvel stories impact each other, they can teach writers how those individual events might still impact throughout their world. Yeah. So I thought that was just a really interesting thing of of looking at it uh, from that world building aspect to figure out how the histories and characters can interconnect, even if you didn't necessarily initially mean for them to. Yeah, that's really interesting, especially when I think about the way that um, I try to build worlds out, because often I'll come to a story idea with an entire universe in my head, even if I don't have a plot. And I very frequently am making like note cards or diagrams or building murder boards, you know? Mm -hmm. And I would really love to see the murder board that he needed to make to do this book. (laughs) (laughs) It's just the size of his entire house. There's less interconnection than I was expecting in the book. But like, obviously, it's hard to talk about. So the chapter that that I've read somewhat most recently, because it's towards the end of the book, was about Squirrel Girl and Ms. Marvel. And so he has to talk about Galactus. Well, that means he has to introduce Galactus. So that means he's also talking about Fantastic Four. (laughs) You know, so like it's interconnected in those sorts of ways where he'll discuss sort of the way, like where where a character started, if that character is relevant to the section that he's talking about. But it's less, and, and there's one chapter that's devoted entirely to one of the huge crossover events. So that one's very interconnected between the various things. But it's not like, explain the X-Men in book form or something like that. (laughs) God, that would be such a long book. It would be such a long (laughs) book. I mean, they're on like 500 episodes, something like that. (laughs) It's a lot of episodes. Uh, So what have you been doing for your inspiration, hunting and gathering? I am, as I frequently do, saw a post on Tumblr the other day. Uh... (laughs) That was basically one of the scenes from Orphan Black of Tatiana Maslany talking to, of course, three different versions of herself. And I thought to myself, man, we gave Tatiana Maslany too much power. And also I need to rewatch Orphan Black. So I've done that recently. And for those of you who don't know, Orphan Black was a show, I think it was on BBC America here in the States, but I'm pretty sure it's a Canadian show uh, in some way. But um, it's a show where Tatiana Maslany literally plays 20 characters. The premise of the show is that there are clones and the main character, Sarah Manning, 
is running from her past, basically. She's trying, she's like stolen some drugs and is going to meet with her brother to try and sell them for money to get her daughter back from the woman who's taking care of her. And she steps onto a train platform and sees herself like a woman who looks just like her in the moments before that woman steps in front of a train. And so that starts off the series of her suddenly realizing that there's another woman who looks just like her and why does that happen and why did she kill herself and what is the deal with the because the woman's a cop so what's the deal with everything in there and then she finds herself in this like tangled world of clones and like big corporations and a thing in the show that they called neolution which is like transhumanism and eugenics with a bow on it <laughs> I mean, it's in it always have a bow on it. I know. Listen, if it doesn't have a bow, it has a little tail. Um, and so the the like the basics of the show was that she and the rest of the clones need to figure out how to take down this giant corporation that owns them, basically. Yeah. Uh, and it is a fascinating show to watch. Like I, while I'm watching it, I like especially in the later seasons kept forgetting that they were played by the same person <laughs> especially like certain like Cosima Cosima could have been a different actress and I just like like whatever I man she's so good I love watching the show because in making the clones different enough for Tatiana to be able to play them all they really did a lot of work in the writing and in the acting for building different ticks and voices and desires into these characters so that they become like worlds apart from each other and I know that's a thing that a lot of writers struggle with is voice and if you have an ensemble cast how do you make that voice different and watching this show I think really drives home all the little details that you can use um, and not even extensively you can just throw some in sparingly that will really differentiate characters and desires and motions to keep your story interesting to the reader. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have had that same experience watching some other actors play a different version of their same character. Like one of the ones that always springs to mind as being just a brilliant version is from Buffy when Sarah Michelle Geller is playing Faith in Buffy's body. And she does such a great job of playing both Faith and playing Faith pretending to be Buffy. <laughs> and, and so, you know, and it and the both of those characters are different from Buffy. So yeah, uh, like I'm always super impressed when when they get to do that. And then more impressed when they get to then act against themselves. I'm having that same experience watching Moon Knight. And I'd love to see a movie or series in which Titiana Maslany and Oscar Isaac both get to play clones or duplicates or whatever, because both of them can kill it. I mean, good news. Tatiana Maslany is going to be She-Hulk. I know, but that's not going to be the same. <laughs> it's not going to be quite the same. And they don't seem to be. So like, because She-Hulk in the comics, like, Jen is just herself she's always green and very tall and buff right 
So, like, I know fandom was a little bummed, right, that they're not going to do CGI for the entire show because Tatiana Maslany is a very small person. Yes. But, like, she's such an incredible actress that, like, I I can't wait, to be honest. I'm super excited about her being in that universe. I think we're going to forget that she's small and tiny unless right? they make that a point, you know. But, like, I think that we'll forget just because uh, I have not watched Orphan Black. I know I need to, but I am very aware that she is an amazing actress. So, I mean, talk about like, because one of my favorite things in television shows is when characters like switch bodies or something and they have to play each other. And so you get to see yeah. how the different actor interprets the way the other actor has moved and talked and built this character. Mm-hmm. And there are legit scenes in Orphan Black where there are three Tatiana Maslany's playing one clone pretending to be a different clone. (laughs) And they're all having to play off each other. And I'm just like, (laughs) first of all, the show is insane. Second of all, brava to everyone involved. (laughs) That is one of those things that you're like, how, how did they film this? (laughs) and to be perfectly honest i can't even keep myself straight like i can't even act like me some days so good work (laughs) uh well i think we've talked enough about our various things so let's get to the main event and talk about our prompt for this week This week's prompt comes from a resource from KL. This week, we're looking at a photograph from the book Talking Pictures, Images and Messages Rescued from the Past by Ransom Riggs. Ransom Riggs is an author. Uh, he's the author of Miss, Ch- Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children is what it's called. I always screw that one up and, and many other things. But he has an obsession with old photographs like you find in antique stores and flea market booths and things like that, Mm -hmm. which I respect because I too spend time digging through old photographs of people at antique stores because I find other people's lives fascinating, right? Like that's one of the reasons I read and it's one of the reasons that I write. This is a book of pictures he's collected. He started collecting antique photos at an early age, but not for the photo's sake. He likes to look at the inscriptions in the back first. So, like, in the beginning of this book, he talks about how when he goes to the antique store, he will pull out a box of photos and turn them all over so we can only see their backs. Oh. So he's not sort of, like, you know, seduced by images of beautiful nature or whatever. He wants to know what character yeah. is in the photo or what it might have before he even looks at it. So he'll turn them over and read them, see if there's anything on the backs that's interesting, and then he'll flip it over. That's an interesting way to go about that. Right. I think that's really cool, too. And, like, that's one of the things where, because I also dig through boxes of old photos, like, I also find photos inspiring. And, you know, I, for a time, kept a sort of muse Tumblr that was essentially just photos I'd collected from the internet. Because sometimes I just wanted to shuffle through them Mm -hmm. and see if any of the images sparked anything. A photograph has a unique ability to make just a moment real in a way that moving pictures and words can't. A photograph is a moment, right? And it's like brimming with possibilities, both before 
and behind the moment. And for me, pictures capture the details of those possibilities in really beautiful ways. And I love dropping myself into the photo and just trying to make believe the world around it. And that's where this less traditional prompt system is coming from this week, (laughs) (laughs) taking our inspiration from other sources. Uh, So with all that context, the image that we're looking to for inspiration is from page 83. In the black and white photo, an older gentleman stands embracing a mermaid statue outside Florida's Wikiwachi. The back of the photo, which is also printed in the book, is labeled me plus my gal with a question mark in parentheses. And I'm including that question mark because I think it's going to factor into our inspiration. As it should. Um, I actually chose this picture for our pile of prompts because it made me laugh. And also because I took a picture in the same vein at Wikiwachi myself last year. This statue itself is no longer at Wikiwachi, but there are as you might imagine, several other statues of mermaids there. <laughs> uh, for those who don't know, Wikiwachi is a spring in Florida, and they're famous and have been since like the 50s or something for their mermaid show. So uh, I took a picture where I'm sitting below a mermaid, just proposing to her with an invisible ring box. I don't know if a real mermaid would say yes or not. I guess I'll have to try and find one and see. <laughs> Yeah, so that's where we're going with this guy. All right, we got to start with our brainstorming. Actually, because you brought the prompt to me, I want to tell you what I am thinking of with this first. Yeah, please. So I feel like there's two routes to go. One is it's a flashback kind of story. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's gone and is, is, you know, we're going to relive our youth sort of thing. And so he had a relationship with this mermaid in the past sort of thing, which I immediately went there because he's an older gentleman and then it's a black and white photo on top of it. So I'm already like thinking flashback. But then the other option, which I also kind of like, is that it's a present day story in which this older gentleman gets to have a relationship with a beautiful mermaid. <laughs> see i like both of those and the second one actually (laughs) dovetails with a thought that i had uh which is pygmalion which i think about frequently honestly yes (laughs) yeah i also was i was like is the statue literally his gal or is it a representation of his gal i i wasn't i wasn't sold but i was yeah I'm on the Pygmalion vibe right with you. Yeah. Like, in thinking about it, um, and in thinking about him getting to have some fun in his old age, and even thematically to just explore new things and continue to grow, um, as we all should, because, you know, it's very easy to stagnate, especially, and this is conjecture, uh, I don't want to offend anyone out there who's older than I am, but I think especially as you get older, It's easy to settle into what you have, right? Like, and I mean, I find this in myself sometimes. I definitely settle into like my job or my routine or, and it takes real effort to break out of that. So I had been thinking about him as a sculptor uh, who probably has sculpted lots of things in his life and, and different works for different commercial pay and never had been able to sculpt 
something as fun as mermaids. Like, <laughs> it was kind of bonkers that Uikiwachi came to him and were like, yeah, make us some mermaid statues, you classical sculptor guy, but don't make them too classical. We need them to be approachable. <laughs> oh, he's he's like really breaking out of his he really <laughs> his own mold. <laughs> Already here with the puns, <laughs> and uh, you know, like he makes these statues, and um, one night one of them gets wet because it's Florida and it literally rains here all of the time. <laughs> We're basically a monsoon state at this point. Um, I am just, I am like just for a second, just like one of the statues gets wet, like it's. How could that possibly happen in Florida? (laughs) I'm going to let you continue. However, I think perhaps the chance encounter maybe should be not water in Florida. Oh, fine. I mean, to be fair, I was thinking of the movie Splash, which I know literally nothing about. I don't think I've ever seen the movie Splash. I just know the image of Daryl Hannah in a bathtub with a tail And I assume, from what I know about the movie, that she turns into a mermaid when she gets wet, which poses several questions for me about the entire rest of her life. (laughs) Well, she she is a mermaid. Okay, good. (laughs) So let's start there. Also, you should definitely watch that movie. Okay. (laughs) You would love it. Yeah, no, I agree. So, okay. So if it's not that... A statue outside in Florida gets wet. Who could have foreseen this? Uh, <laughs> like, what are we thinking? Like, how does the mermaid become a real girl? Well, we could go even more fantasy in, I mean, like, fairy godmothers kind of thing or some other mystical entity grants it life. Or it could just be that... As, like, that he does it. Like, the very fact that as he is sculpting it, I mean, like, very Pygmalion here, as he's sculpting it, he is viewing it more and more and more alive. And so it's him and his perception and belief that eventually brings her to life. So thinking about that, And thinking about him having to sculpt this sculpture or these sculptures differently than he usually sculpts things, right? So it's not his usual aesthetic. And it's not something, like, it's a thing he's going to need to learn new techniques for. So it's possible that more than love, which I feel is a little creepy, like, the story of (laughs) Chameleon is not, like, (laughs) too non-creepy, what if he's just imbuing it with this sense of possibility, right? Like he's having to learn different skills and having to shape her a different way than he would shape a regular human statue. And so his feelings of being scared a little bit that he's going to get it wrong and being open to just sort of the possibilities of whatever's whatever's going to happen And how these skills are going to change him, like, that's the sort of thing he could imbue the statue with instead of, you know, like, sort of a whisper of desire. I like that a lot better. 
uh, unsurprisingly. Um, <laughs> that idea of that she then becomes a creature of possibilities of change of representing that like personified change that might be an interesting characteristic to add to her as well maybe she is actually physically changeable you know maybe not quite like just shape-shifting at will but maybe her body is more malleable and so when she needs a copy of his key she just puts her finger onto it and you know whatever but like like she, where she has some changeability to her form as well and just like go go gadget murfin <laughs> i was trying i was like at first i was like she needs a knife and then she can hand transform her hand into a knife and i was like that's not gonna be very sharp <laughs> Like, let's maybe not go quite there. But, you know, I don't know. I mean. Something along those lines. I don't know. They made Stone Age tools that were quite sharp. So perhaps she could get the job done, even though she's not the Terminator. <laughs> maybe she is the Terminator. <gasps> Sarah Connor. <laughs> oh, never mind. Her name is now Sarah Connor. <laughs> <laughs> or no, her name is Sarah and his name is Connor. There we go. Yes. I mean, I was just thinking that. Uh, he could be the baby Connor all grown up. That's not part of the story. Let's not drag that into it. <laughs> this is where editing comes in, folks. <laughs> not even I go with every bad idea I have. <laughs> I mean, sometimes those ideas, you chase them down and you see what happens. Mm -hmm. um, all right. So, so she then becomes a creature that embodies change. So, that's kind of like the inciting incident, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. That she is transformed. So what is, what's his goal? What's our, what's our pal Connor's goal? Like, is he, and, and I mean, her coming alive obviously might change his goal a little bit. Because <laughs> um, his goal initially could just be, I mean, it could be as simple as getting a paycheck initially. Right. So... His goal is just, to, like, let's say they commissioned, like, five statues from him, like, different poses just to place around the park for photo ops and things like that. And this is the first one he's created. Uh-huh. So it's the one with the most possibility. And when he's really, like, thinking about throwing in the towel one night because he just doesn't feel like he's doing this project justice and it's really frustrating him, that's when she comes to life, right? Because that's the moment when he might need the sense of possibility the most. Right. But that's the moment when it changes for him, right? Because she comes to life and he's like, oh, no, I can't give this to Wikiwachi. It's a living being. Um, <laughs> I, I would, uh, that's wrong. So he's like, wait, I don't, like, I need to make this paycheck, right? I need to complete these statues. But the first one became real. What if the other five become real? What am I going to do with five mermaids in my life? I don't even know what they eat. <laughs> and I can't afford to feed them because I can't even complete this project. Okay, I think that's the greatest <laughs> conflict in this sort of scenario that I have ever heard. Because the idea that he would just continue making the statues, I think is perfect. <laughs> Because it fits 
with the character who is stuck in his routines. And and so, of course, he would finish the job he was hired to do because he's stuck in his in his routines. This is the thing that he was hired to do. Like all of that makes sense that that would be his first concern is I have to finish my project. (laughs) I am relating really hardcore right now. (laughs) But for him to be like, well, what what am I going to they what if they all become real? Oh, my God, that's so great. So. I think one of the things that needs to happen here, or at least the thing that this seems obvious to me, is that she is there to help him finish, right? Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that she teaches him as like, the, or at least maybe not, not that she's teaching him, she's not responsible for his learning or his growth, but like from this experience, the thing that he can then grow from is what being open to change can do for him. It's not just her because he has already taken the steps towards that by taking this job that is off the beaten path for him. It's a not the same techniques. It's not the same um, subject matter. So for him, this is a very different sort of thing. I actually, I kind of envision that he had like some missteps that were more like his his classical style or whatever his initial aesthetic is. I'm almost envisioning like abstract mermaids that he tried to do. And then she brings them to life just because that would amuse me. Um, (laughs) It's just a collection of triangles. It just falls in a heap to the floor. Exactly what I was thinking is it's basically, and it's just sort of like flopping on the ground. And it's like, I'm alive. (laughs) (laughs) I love uh, just every one of them. Sarah, Sarah, Bobera, and Banana Fana, Foe and Farah are all like, I'm alive. I'm a real mermaid. <laughs> and he's like, please shut up. My landlord will hear. <laughs> well, the thing is, if they're if they're made out of like clay that's not set mm-hmm. or, or something else that would dissolve in water, they can't get in the water. <sighs> Don't go swimming. It's not just don't – can you not get gremlins wet ever or is it after midnight? I don't remember. I don't remember gremlins rules. I think you can't get them wet ever and you can't feed them after midnight. That's what I was thinking. Which but- won't be a problem because he still doesn't know what fake mermaids eat. So <laughs> – They're going to starve on top of this. Man, rough life being a fake mermaid. See th- – okay, so this is my question now. The mermaid herself – Herselves? Is it the same consciousness in every one of them? Oh, good lord. <laughs> no, they are different. Okay, okay, sorry. <laughs> so the mermaids themselves. We're not orphan blacking this. <laughs> it's not. Look, Sarah and Cosima and Allison are not the same consciousness. They're very different people. I don't even envision them looking alike in this scenario. Abstract mermaid does not look like Sarah. <laughs> No, no, I wasn't envisioning them looking alike. I was just thinking about if they had been imbued with the same spirit, then maybe the spirit that is speaking out back to him through them has a hive mind. But if you like them being different people, that's also fine. (laughs) I mean, I'm going to tell you, I love the idea of them being a hive mind. It's a different kind of cloning, and I love it. Okay. 
it's just very confusing and borderline <laughs> super creepy. Oh, it's so creepy. <laughs> like your options are they all talk in unison or they finish each other's sentences. <laughs> I was thinking more of the they finish each other's sentences, but if they want to make a point, they might all talk in unison. If they want to make a point, they're absolutely are talking in unison. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My question then is, to keep this from becoming a story where this man learns something from a basically female-shaped creature, yeah. and yeah, then it goes not. back to being dead, I which I do not I like at all. I don't want to do that. What does the spirit get in return for this? Like, does it get to be set free? And what does that look like? So if it's a thing where the spirit itself and not the vessel is the creation then the spirit might not necessarily be able to, like, it might be able to leave the vessel. So the picture of him being the, the mermaid once it's installed in the park, and he may visit that in the future to try and get in touch with that sense of possibility and that sense of being able to bring the world he wants to fruition. But that doesn't necessarily mean he is sort of damning a living being to be looked at all day and like manhandled and stared at in a way that is gross. <laughs> uh, so remember how I said the Dark Phoenix saga is near and dear to my heart? <laughs> I never would have known. So um, I would envision this less as this spirit of creation and possibility being chained to a physical form but rather imbuing it temporarily. Mm -hmm. And so when it leaves that form, it just goes back into the universe somewhere, et cetera, et cetera. So it could be called upon, again, we are very much getting into territory of a literal muse, which while I don't love in my personal writing life, it's fine in a story. Well, I think it depends on how you frame the idea of a muse. So... He did not get these ideas from the spirit. He already had them. He's already created these. Mm -hmm. It's in the creation of them that he is learning how to become a different person. And that learning is necessary. I don't know where that sentence was going. Anyway, I don't think like I don't think it's a pure muse. Like I don't I also don't really like the idea of, oh, here's this spirit that comes to me in a feminine form and it's given me everything that I want. But to be able to say, okay, here's the spirit that I have set free from within myself, right? It's like when you create a piece of art and it goes into the world and it belongs to the people who see it. It doesn't belong to you anymore. Mm-hmm. Which, if anyone wants my TED Talk on art, hit me up on Twitter. But <laughs> it's that sort of emotion where he's unlocked something in itself and set it free. And it is being allowed to take this form momentarily because it's going to help him. So, in essence, the spirit lives inside of him. Yeah, maybe. Hmm. I don't know if I like that that much, actually. Like, I like the idea of the spirit being something that he has managed to capture in some way, but not to keep 
it's just that it was happening by or it was summoned by I was going to say, what if it's less a capturing yeah. and more of a willing vacation? It's like sharks in blood. It could smell it on him. Yes. And so it came to the place where it thought it might be needed. Because I think there are a lot of spirits like that in folktales and stuff Mm -hmm. that show up in a moment of need. And so this is one of those spirits that has its own existence outside of this man, but that can turn itself into the thing that the person needs at the time in order to manifest the people that the world needs. Okay, so he's at his low point trying to get this sculpture right. And this spirit of possibility is enticed by the fact that he is at this low point and basically needs a pep talk. And at this point, I'm going to break in and tell you, man, I really want one of these. Uh, when are <laughs> you going to show up, dude? Come on. <laughs> I need some help here. I need a pep talk. I'm going to buy you some of that like kinetic sand and you can just make your own little sculptures and talk to them. Yeah, but I need it to help me with writing. <laughs> <laughs> so Sarah, the mermaid statue, spirit of possibility comes to life. Uh, and it may even be something that he doesn't entirely understand. Maybe Sarah doesn't even really explain it, but she's there to inspire him. I like the idea that he has sort of an existential crisis about, well, what if they all come alive and I start creating a mermaid statue army and then I can take over the world and yeah, I'm I'm down for for him having to go through a little bit of of mental anguish over should I continue sculpting. And Sarah, of course, says, "Of course, you should continue sculpting. We all need your art in the world. The young children need to take their pictures with mermaid statues at Wikiwachi." And then it's like the Greek chorus where Sarah the mermaid and the abstract mermaid, and then maybe an Art Nouveau mermaid are all like. We need you. We need you. We're not writing a horror story here. <laughs> That's terrifying. <laughs> you say terrifying. I say excellent. <laughs> I I absolutely Art Nouveau mermaid. I think an Art Deco mermaid. Um, <laughs> yeah. I really want to see Art Deco mermaid. So anyway, she gets him to continue with his work. I don't know. Do, is this a one night kind of story where, you know, the next day, oh, yes, everything's all wrapped up? Or is this a story that takes a little longer and we get more wacky mermaid hijinks with the <laughs> spirit who can only swim? They have a really limited uh, scope of how far the the story can go. I assume his bathtub is only so big, so he can't fit them all in there. <laughs> I am. I am also like. I guess he's gonna like pull out his little red wagon, throw her in there, and just wheel her around. <laughs> I don't know why I turned him into a ten year old there. <laughs> Listen, in moments of pure possibility, we often find joy within ourselves that we did not remember existed. So. If you've got a little red wagon, I think you should use it. But I wasn't thinking one night. I was thinking more of an arc of like 
how do I overcome the problem that I'm having with the statues that I'm making just not doing what I want them to? <laughs> Which I'm sure many writers can relate say, to as a concept. Relatable. Yeah. <laughs> Like, can you just look more comely, please? And she's like, no, I don't feel like it today. Uh, <laughs> Ain't that the truth? Listen, buddy, I don't got a smile for you. Although the idea of like mermaid past, mermaid present, and mermaid future does make <laughs> me chuckle. <laughs> I do like the idea that it's less about her like she doesn't teach him skills right you know like right. she's not saying like oh if you held your your uh i don't know what tools that people use for statue making <laughs> like a chisel, chisel. <laughs> if you held your chisel differently you would be able to get it or you know whatever i don't think she's teaching him in those sorts of skills just like she's there in present and he continues to persevere and work hard. She's sort of less amuse and more more a pep talk. And then he is still pushing forward with his own initiative. Yeah. Mostly, I think that's what I want for my life. <laughs> well, this is the thing, right? Is that so one of the main problems that I have as a writer and as an artist, is that I tend not to finish things because they're not perfect, right? And we all know that no first draft of anything is perfect. You're never going to put the paint down right the first time. You're never going to put the words down right the first time. That's just not how it works. But I get so caught up in my head of this thing is so beautiful in my mind. And when I take it out of my mind, it's eminently fallible. And so she is helping him to push past that and imbue his art with the life that he wants it to have ultimately. Because in the thread of art belonging to the people who see it and not the person who made it, once you let it go in the world, you have to let it go. Like, you have to complete it. And he's a working sculptor. He's familiar with this. But I get the sense that he's also never been pushed this way out of his comfort zone and maybe he's only taken this job because he needs the money right like he needs to buffer his uh, retirement fund or something i really like the idea that that he needs the job this isn't the job that he really wanted to take but he doesn't necessarily i i don't think he's snobby and thinks of it as a sellout no, or anything right, like that yeah. but but like this is not what he normally does and so there is discomfort there, but there's necessity and there's willingness. You know, he's perfectly fine with going with this. He wouldn't have taken it otherwise, but it's not like top tier what he wants to do. <laughs> <laughs> it's the job that he can do, except when he gets into it, he's like, oh, this is a much harder than I thought it was. Mm -hmm. Again, relatable. Yeah. And I mean, frequently, like... If you go into an art museum with someone who is not an artist and you look at like modern art and they're like, oh, that's nonsense. I could do that because they're not thinking about the context and the rest of art history and perhaps the skill involved in putting 
like mounting things together and stuff like that. Color theory. Yeah, color theory. Like he <laughs> Oh my god, yeah. that is a thing. And so he did not realize he was getting in and over his head when he took this job that should have just been easy. Yeah. Like I think that's where our question mark comes in, right? Like me and my gal question mark like is this actually something else or is this just my ability to create the things that I want even out of inconvenient circumstances? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I'm I'm following you. All right. So so we've got obviously what's a fantasy story. Yes. <laughs> Not strictly a fantasy with mermaids though. Uh much more a fantasy with spirits and and sort of more mystical elements coming into it. Um our setting is of course Florida uh because we want to hit in wiki watchy. <laughs> we should just go find them, get them to sponsor this episode. Our character is an older sculptor who we've pinned Connor. Uh, <laughs> and he had to take this job as a way of making ends meet. And he is making mermaid statues, new mermaid statues for the park. He normally is a more sort of classical sculptor. So this is outside of his Ballywick. And he thought this would be a fairly easy job, but it's a lot harder than he than he had expected it to be a lot of experience with that so his main goal is just to freaking finish these statues that were a lot harder to do than he thought they'd be and when he hits his low point when he feels like he's just not going to be able to complete this job maybe he's gonna have to go back to doing something else entirely or just not have the money that he needed for retirement because this is an older gentleman that is when his mermaid statue, Sarah, comes to life. And Sarah is a spirit of possibility and comes to give him a pep talk because Connor's statues are very important to the little children who visit Wikiwachi and want to take pictures with the mermaid statues because the mermaids who are part of the show can't always just hang around for pictures. So sometimes you need to take a picture with a statue. Plus they are nearer to where water is. So the one obstacle is absolutely his difficulty finishing sort of a uh, creative stifling that he's feeling on his own. Another obstacle is his statue just came to life. That's weird. He doesn't necessarily want that to happen again. But through perseverance, hard work, believing in himself, through a pep talk from a spirit embodying his own work, he is able to finish. And then when he returns to the statue and sees his good friend Sarah immortalized at Wikiwachi, he has to question, is that really Sarah? Or was it just... Something that came from inside of me all along. I mean, now I kind of want to write an essay about how the mermaids at Wikiwachi themselves are creatures of possibility. It will diverge into like consumerism and tourism and things like that. But there's a like very specific reason that guy chose mermaids, right? Like, <laughs> <sighs> I just love mermaids so much. 
I want to read your essay when you write it. Thanks. Uh, I'll be shopping it around if anybody wants to buy 5,000 words on mermaids. (laughs) (laughs) I promise there won't be any gaping maws in it. No koi fish. Oh, koi koi fish. All right. Well, now that we've untangled a plot, it's time to untangle your questions. Uh, Mel asks via email, what are the benefits of outlining versus not? Plotting versus pantsing. And how detailed should your outline be? So let's just start with the benefits of outlining versus not. This is a thing that I struggle with because I've written perfectly good stories just plowing through them from my brain. But I've also written stories that I really love by having extensively outlined them. And then there are those stories that you dither away your time outlining, right? Where you're like, <laughs> oh, no, I'm going to change this part here. Oh, no, something happened down here. Oh, no. And then you just do that for five years. And that's clearly the point where maybe you should rethink how you write. But I think the benefit of an outline is having like at least one headlamp through the fog, right? Like if you think of the Neil Gaiman quote about writing a story always being driving through fog and only being able to see what's directly in front of you Mm -hmm. and having to trust, you know, that there's other stuff there. I think that an outline can help with that. And now I just have the song One Headlight stuck in my head. (laughs) 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 One headlight. (laughs) Thank you for that musical interlude. (laughs) The lows and the wallflowers were solid. (laughs) To no one's surprise, I am quite structured when it comes to writing, but I go through a stage that is a little bit more like pantsing or discovery writing because I have to figure out what ideas I want to explore and how I want to explore them. So even though I wind up with an outline, there is discovery writing involved in that process. For me, it's frequently a synopsis that I write where I might in the middle of the synopsis go, wait, hold on, no, draw an X through that paragraph and then just start over again, which, I mean, that's a lot of what pantsing is like. I'm just doing it in a synopsis shorter format than in a whole novel. (laughs) And I think that's part of what some people don't quite understand is that outlining is still pantsing it's just pantsing in a form <laughs> rather than <laughs> than like pantsing the whole thing so i think the two go hand in hand rather than uh, or should go hand in hand anyway because i like to have things more planned out but yeah uh, i i like an outline for that guidance if you use any kind of structured form like a beat sheet or the snowflake method or any of those other methodologies, four-act structure, three-act structure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of those just provide you a format that you can use and then fill in the blanks. But you don't have to outline in that way. You know, like I said, I frequently start with just writing a synopsis, and that is essentially an outline. I take it to more specific places. I don't just leave it with the synopsis. I break it out into beats and scenes and things like that. I actually don't use a beat sheet until the very end where I just sort of like match up what I was doing to a beat sheet to kind of be like, is my pacing about right? But 
yeah, it's all of that is, I think, things that work together and that can only help you figure out your structure and your pacing. I think those are the two things in particular that people benefit from when they outline. I think that's interesting because you mentioned using outlining to like figure out your themes and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the problem that I struggle with outlines is that, as I mentioned earlier, I usually come to a story with a world and with the themes. Like when I started writing the, the cyberpunk project, I knew what I wanted it to be about, right? Like I wanted it to be about personhood and, you know, consent and who art belongs to and all of those things that I have capital O opinions and capital T thoughts about all of the time. But I struggle with then plotting out a story that would do that in the best way, right? So like... I do the exact opposite from you. I know. And th- <laughs> like this and I mean this is the thing where your outline should be as detailed as it can be without becoming distracting, right? Right. Because I have on occasion outlined and then just gone in below the outline and done a bullet and written a deeper like a more detailed version and then gone below that in a bullet and written essentially a scene. Right. And then written stories that way where I just granularly level down and follow along this thread of the general sort of I want that like this thing needs to get stolen and I want this character to meet this person and I want this character to be kidnapped and there should be a bicycle chasing or whatever. Not a bicycle chasing, a motorcycle chasing. It's a bicycle chasing (laughs) in your cyberpunk novel. I want to see it now. Mon velo e vitesse. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, like sometimes I become mired down in outlines in that way, in that plotting and replotting and rearranging, like I mentioned earlier, where I'm ripping things out because I'm chasing down that theme and trying to make it the most strong it can be instead of chasing down a story which is not the way anyone should do things. Please do as I say and not as I do. (laughs) Well, like I said, with structure, it's useful for for giving you the story elements of it. So if you've got the ideas for what the scene should be, you can then just plug it into some kind of structure. You know, like the structure that we use here on Story Chronicles Mm -hmm. is fairly simple where we're really looking for like an inciting and a incident, a climax, and a resolution, usually. We didn't really hit a climax on this one. <laughs> Gotta, <laughs> I'll admit that. We kind of skipped over that. It's fine, though. We have a loose outline. That's the Listen, point here. The bit where it gets real <laughs> creepy and he's concerned about his sanity should definitely be the climax. That's probably it. We need you. <laughs> but that's a basic plot structure is my point. <laughs> you know, you don't have to do more than that if that's what you're comfortable doing. I work in a lot of repetitive layers, which is often one of the reasons why I feel like I work on something forever, because I work on it forever. Um, Because I start frequently with that just some little idea of a thing, and then I go through and I'll write a whole synopsis. I will have at least where that character starts 
and where they end Mm -hmm. because you need those two Mm -hmm. beats to make a story. So I usually start with that. Then I can write a synopsis. And and I usually have like some kind of premise, uh, whether it's, you know, steampunk inventor, gay pirates, you know, whatever, uh, time traveling story. I've got some kind of structure, world that I'm working with, even if I don't have all the details. Go through, write that synopsis. And then from that synopsis, I start pulling apart like what the scenes are. And I actually usually have a fairly detailed scene list before I have broken them into chapters, put them in any kind of like, you know, beat sheet structure or any other kind of structure. I pull all of that together because that's what I know the story will be. So I work with what I know rather than working from something that's that's a finished thing and I'm plugging in my own stuff. But for me, a lot of the themes come out in that development. Mm-hmm. I might have thought, oh, well, I want this character to be chasing this thing. Or um, I really, you know, my my time travel story, I really want to use it in part to discuss gender identity. So like, I know that is there, but I don't know what else is going to come up. And so that's the place that I leave it open for for some discovery as I'm putting together all of those bits and pieces and mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff. As long as your process works for you, I think you continue with it. And, you know, don't worry so much about how much detail should you put in. You put in the amount of detail that is helpful for you. And also like know that sometimes one project is just going to not fit your process and you have to look at it differently. Because I absolutely have written things with a lot less structure than I normally do. I didn't write the synopsis or I wrote the synopsis, but I never needed the scene outlines. I just needed like a one sentence Mm -hmm. beat of like where the characters were and which characters were it. And that was all that I needed because stories come to us differently. Yeah. And they develop differently. And I think figuring out what your process is for each project is part of the struggle of being a writer. (laughs) Yeah. It's not just just your whole process. It's each individual. <laughs> I mean, and that's a thing that, that writers frequently say, right? Where they're like, oh, I finished this project and I started the next one and I entirely forgot how to write a novel. Like, yeah. And like, as I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about the the concepts of plotting versus pantsing. And I think that there is value in pantsing. Like I was purely a pantser for yes. a long time. Just, be, just going off vibes, man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it depends on what your aim is. And so I think that if you have like, like, say you're writing to spec, or if you have a deadline that you have to meet so you need to know how many words you're writing Mm -hmm. each week or day or whatever like an outline would be incredibly beneficial to those sorts of projects Mm -hmm. where you need to be able to keep a handle on the qualitative and quantitative amount of work that you are doing yeah and then like the pantsing and the meandering and the saying oh well i want to touch on consent but i really need to talk about like tattoos for some reason because i'm obsessed um (laughs) that's me personally those sorts of things tend to blossom out in a way that can become unmanageable for me personally i've known many people who can 
get in there and pants and come back with a 500,000 word story that is tight, which yeah. sounds like... I don't understand those people. <laughs> yeah. They are, yeah. <laughs> they are witches. They are. <laughs> they have a magic spell that they will not share with me. And I admire them, but I'm not sure that I like them. <laughs> it sounds counterintuitive to be like, oh, I wrote this 500,000 words. But it essentially what these people have done is write a five book series. Yes. Yeah. And posted it for free on the Internet. Like that is magic. Congrats, everyone, on being amazing. <laughs> I tend to think of pantsing in the same way that I do my collage work, right? Where I'm just sitting down with my box of toys and we'll figure it out as we go. Mm hmm. And there's value in that. I think that teaches you things. But if you have a specific need, then plotting is probably the way you should try to go. Yes. And I mean, like I said, I just I'm doing that stage in a list of scene descriptions and not in paragraphs and paragraphs. And part of that is definitely because I am a perfectionist editor and those two things want to produce fairly clean scenes <laughs> in one go. <laughs> See, this is we both need to just let it go. <laughs> Man, it's it's tough out here to be a writer. It is. Not gonna lie. But yeah, I think the the story colonel's answer for you is your outline should be as detailed as you need it to be, which is extremely helpful advice. <laughs> I mean and there really. are benefits to both outlining <laughs> And not outlining. <laughs> okay, I don't feel bad about this, though, because that's essentially the answer every writer gives, is that, yeah, like, it is. listen, I'm not you. I want you to live your best life, man. Like, <laughs> <laughs> It absolutely is. Writing is just a thing that is is very individual and, and like I said, can vary project to project. And and we've got a mix between the two of us of outlining and not outlining mm -hmm. and and success at that and not success at that. <laughs> I'm not going to call it failure. I'm going to call it not success. Listen, we've both been published, but how many stories have we both started that have not been published? Let's not count that high. <laughs> Story Kernels is a podcast about inspiration and developing ideas. If you'd like to create something based on one of the prompts or the ideas we develop, feel free. We'd love to see your work and possibly share it in a future episode. You can find episodes of Story Kernels along with related content for every episode at storykernels.com. If you'd like to help support Story Kernels and keep the podcast ad-free, you can support us at patreon.com slash storykernels. Drop us a line or send us one of your Story Kernels creations at storykernelspodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, or Instagram at StoryKernelsPod. StoryKernels is produced by Sarah Nicholas. Our logo is by Rebecca Wilcox. And the music you hear at the beginning and end of the episode is by Raptorface. Next week, we'll be diving into another story, this time using a prompt from a good old-fashioned prompt book. As you write stories, remember, no one expects the giant psychedelic cuddlefish Ooh, help us, we need you.